episode of Always Be My Sisters. Why that name? Well, not only is it the last line in the series, but it is the foundation to all that Golden Girls encompasses. That through all the highs and lows life brings, your chosen family will always be there. Before we hop into the show, I wanted to take just a moment to introduce myself. You may know me from my other podcast, Murder in the Rain, where I talk about true crime in the Pacific Northwest. And you may be wondering, how does one go from true crime to Golden Girls? While I love true crime and finding ways to bring attention to stories that need coverage, it's nice to escape to happy things now and again. And with me is Josh McCullough. Hello. And he is my Coco, per se. As my personal houseboy, he helps direct, produce, and edit the show while adding to the stories. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being a friend and for being my Coco that I hope gets in the habit of cooking me delicious food while I'm working. Additionally, Golden Girls is truly one of my favorite things on this planet, so it isn't hard for me to talk about it for hours on end. While I will be visiting the history and fun facts of the show, Always Be My Sisters really is a show about friendship. This has been one hell of a year, a million things to stress about, yet I think we've all learned that the most important thing in life is the relationships we have and getting to spend time with those you love. We've not only learned that lesson, but we've been, for the most part, unable to act on it. I haven't seen my closest friends, my sisters, in months due to quarantine and health concerns. So perhaps this is really just my love letter to not only all of them, who I miss so dearly, but to all of your friendships out there. The complicated ones, the easy ones, the new ones, and the old. We've learned what it takes to be a friend, and that it isn't about bringing the biggest gift, but just getting to hang together at the party. While I consider myself an expert-level Golden Girls fan, I'm not perfect. So if you feel I've missed a fun fact, have a correction, or you just want to share your fond memories of the show, please email me at alwaysbemysisters at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you, and I will be sharing some of those emails at the end of every episode. So with no further ado, I present the first episode of Always Be My Sisters with the first episode of The Golden Girls, The Engagement. Before we get to the story, we must talk about the theme song. I created my theme with the vocal assistance of my own Golden Girls, Jocelyn Cook, Jamie Ulrich, and Emily Rowney, in the same spirit as the iconic Thank You for Being a Friend, a song that was originally written and performed by Andrew Gold. Andrew got his start as an instrumentalist on Linda Ronstadt's album before venturing out on his own. It was 1978 when he released Thank You for Being a Friend, which landed at 25 on the charts. When NBC decided to use it as a theme, they asked Cynthia Fee to re record the friend-adoring lyrics into what I think is one of, if not the most loved and recognizable theme songs in television history. Out the gate, we are introduced to B. Arthur's newest television character, Dorothy Zbornak. Fresh off of completing the series Maud, where B. played a much more brash and demanding character, there are still sprinkles of that harshness in her first words, I taught a class today, the finest school in Dade County. Two girls had shaved heads and three boys had green hair. She then goes on to say that she kicked the kids out of class because they were too ugly and that she was surprised that the parents were upset. A statement that once you get to know and love the progressive and caring Dorothy seems out of touch for her. But no time to dwell on that. We get straight to our first oh boy moment of the series. While meeting Dorothy, we also meet the girl's housekeeper, Coco. He is clearly written as a stereotypically flamboyant gay character of the 80s. 
He offers her enchilada rancheros that he's been cooking on the stove, and Dorothy responds with a, why don't you just shoot me? I guess because it's not Italian food, or maybe we just needed to know how contrarian she was going to be about everything. I'm not sure, but it's frankly pretty rude. While so much of Golden Girls has survived because they touch on real topics, dealt with them in progressive ways, and talked about them frankly, there is one topic they always get to that, while as real as it is, especially in a group of women, to talk about our bodies and how we want to lose weight or look better, and so much of the shade on the show comes from body jokes, the body shaming is one unfortunate aspect that is very dated. Even more unfortunate is that Blanche and Rose's introduction is about wanting to get swelling down on Blanche's eyes and Rose's thighs. Then we get what will be a short-lived opening credits shot of Blanche. She's leaning on the door in another bit of an oh boy as she's wearing a fur shawl. But that scene only lasted the first few episodes before being replaced by her iconic hallway scene. While Coco is given a few jokes, and it would have been nice to see more people of color and different sexual orientations on the program, this was too much. It's very sitcom-y. So this episode is our first and last encounter with Dear Sweet Coco. Coco's existence was to provide a non-female character that didn't also bring sexual tension. This was because Golden Girls was so groundbreaking being only women, it was feared by the networks that a lack of maleness, even in a flamboyant character, would make people turn away. Coco was played by actor Charles Levin. Charles had already been building his acting career for 10 years before the Golden Girls came along. He went on to work on shows like Empty Nest, Doogie Howser, La La, I'm sorry, that's L.A. Law, Seinfeld, and Law and & Order. In 2019, 70-year-old Charles died after he fell accidentally when his car became disabled off a main road near Cave Junction right here in Oregon. So we say thank you to Charles and to Coco for being one of the first friends to our Golden Girls and for all of the entertainment he provided to the audiences that loved him. We have, of all people, Doris Roberts of Everybody Loves Raymond fame and Selma Diamond from Night Court to thank for the existence of Golden Girls. They were at an NBC event and started joking about an old lady show called Miami Nice. Executives heard them and started to toy around with the idea, bringing in Susan Harris, who had previously worked on another hilarious and groundbreaking show, Soap. She had hoped Coco would be more representative, that during the AIDS crisis, there would be someone on television talking about it, but that didn't fly. The women carried the show on their own, Coco was too much of a caricature, and Sophia was able to carry all his zingers. While this was what I found about the creation, I've also heard that at that promo event, those gals were actually in a corporate joke video wherein they made a spoof called Miami Nice. But that video is very hard to find. In fact, I've never seen it. So if anyone has it, please let us know. As the episode goes on, the girls touch on aging and coming to the realization they aren't in their 20s or 40s anymore. We get to our first real taste of Rose being a total dingbat. So Blanche has been dating a man named Harry. This opens a conversation for the girls to talk about how dating is frustrating at that age. Perhaps it was the 80s or that these gals came from the Depression, but after only a week of dating, full-on bachelorette style, Harry has proposed. Blanche doesn't give him an answer right away, and the girls fret that she's going to get married and they will be out of a home. It's also the first mention of Blanche's deceased husband, love of her life, George. When a knock is heard at the door, it's assumed that it's Harry, but instead it's a small woman, Sophia Petrillo, Dorothy's mom. She quickly gives us another oh boy by saying Blanche looks like a prostitute. First off, it's sex worker. And also, uh, you know, clown makeup doesn't exactly mean being a sex worker, but it still is a pretty good burn. I think in both looks and character, Sophia grows the most. Not only was Estelle Getty the youngest cast member, leading to a lot of makeup, I mean, they had a really low bar out the gate when it came to her hair and face. She looks like a community college actress doing a character workshop. But through the series, her character really grows to be not only the fourth lead, but a much more realistic and beautiful older woman. Additionally, they explain Sophia's sass by saying that she had had a stroke, which her character did, but that it caused severe brain damage, specifically to the part of the brain that filters what she says. 
Again, very sitcom-y. And while Dorothy does make reference to it in a few later episodes, it was not really spoken of ever again. She just remained her outspoken, independent self. While Sophia's Burns are classic, her intro is one oh boy after another. She arrives at the house explaining that she had a Cuban taxi driver who was bilingual, who asked for double rate because he was, and that he would probably fall in love with Blanche because she was prostitute looking. She then refers to Coco as the fancy man in the kitchen and returns calling him an okay petunia. Here we get another short-lived opening credit shot of Sophia. Thank goodness they changed it. I couldn't take seven seasons of that gray makeup and bad wig. Harry then arrives and is very dapper and meets the girls. Sophia goes into a story about her old folks' home burning down and how dangerous it was. After Sophia meets Harry, she refers to him as a scuzzball, which I feel makes her a kindred spirit of mine. I like to think I have that same kind of intuition about people, not that I always listen to it. And things get a little bit heartbreaking when Rose starts spiraling about how they all became friends at a later age, but now Blanche is getting married and it might tear them all apart. Also, Dorothy, of all the girls, is the only one that's divorced. The rest have all been widowed, which, in doing the math, it has been quite some time, 15 years for Rose, close to the same for the others, since their husbands have died, which for Rose and Blanche puts them in their 40s when they died. When I was a kid, that seemed normal. Oh, they have gray hair. Of course their husbands are dead. Well, now that I have gray hair, am approaching my 40s, and am in love with someone in his 40s, well, it's just not normal, and I best not be widowed in the next 10 years. Granted, back then, the lifespan was only 70 compared to today's 80-ish. Still, these guys were way younger than even my own dad. Luckily, we don't stay sad for long as Sophia breaks the silence of Rose's existential crisis with get a poodle, the first of her ul sounds that I'm kind of obsessed with. Speaking of sounds I'm obsessed with, now that I know what ASMR is and that it is a real thing, re-watching this show has reminded me of all the ASMR it gave me as a kid. For those that don't know, ASMR, or Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, is not experienced by everyone. But if you've ever heard someone typing and got goosebumps, or felt chills up your spine when someone played with your hair, or you melt into a blob when someone whispers, you've experienced ASMR. Golden Girls is full of ASMR triggering moments for me, such as Sophia's metal, mental sounds, the front doorknob, and of course the ultimate, the tile floor with Blanche's kitten heels. Absolute heaven. I'd love to hear from you what other ASMR moments you've had with the show. You can find me on Instagram or send me an email. So where were we? On the lanai, the girls and Coco wait patiently to hear if Blanche is going to marry Harry, and they discuss Blanche's thirsty ways. Then Dorothy proclaims she needs to get to bed because she's subbing for a teacher that was shot by a student, and the audience awkwardly laughs. It's funny because it's true. Ha ha ha. Well, in 1985, there were five school-related shootings, and in 2019, 45 shootings took place on a high school or college campus. All right, now back to the fun, but kind of not. Rose goes on to talk about her late husband, Charles Charlie Nyland, and how she still likes to think of him as being alive. This moment is really the show's heart in a nutshell. They can talk in a real way about real life, missing someone, pretending they're still around, and have it supported, in this case by sweet baby angel Coco, but then Dorothy makes a joke of it. But it doesn't come off as dismissive. It's Dorothy's coping skill, and it keeps things based in reality. Hey, we can be sad, but we're going to be able to make a joke about it. Weird coming from me, almost like the show completely shaped my way of handling grief. We're not even halfway through the first episode, and Blanche has announced that she's decided to marry Harry, the man she has known for a week. The announcement is interrupted by another one of my favorite aspects of the show, the tangents. Dorothy, Rose, and Coco get into it about oysters and if they can move or not. I love the realness of this, or at least for me and my friends, that it doesn't take much for us to get totally off topic until we settle it. We can't move on or go back to whatever the original point was. For the record, oysters do move. So not only does Blanche get engaged in a week, they're getting married in a week. So two weeks from meeting to getting married. 
We get more backstory on Rose and Dorothy, that Rose and Charlie were engaged for two years and that Dorothy had a blowgun wedding. Of course, Rose means a shotgun wedding, which is not surprisingly an American term that started around the beginning of the 20th century. This is when the bride is pregnant, and be it from a literal shotgun or just familial pressure, she and the baby's father are kind of forced into getting married. Well, Dorothy was a pregnant teenager, and her father forced her to marry her now ex-husband, Stan. Dorothy drops a bit of a plot whoopsie here, saying she's from Queens, when we all know she grew up in Brooklyn. Dorothy gives a backstory as to her and Stan getting married young and pregnant, and that at 38 years of marriage, he ran off with a stewardess, or flight attendant, who, on her first flight to Hawaii, must have been confused with giving the passengers a lay. Gotta love a good wordplay. We get another plot whoopsie when she says that Stan is 65, meaning he would have been, depending on your math, which I'll get into on a later episode, he was 25 or 27 when they got married. She was of age, but still very yuck. Also, in a future episode about prom, Stan was her date. So was her school just loosey-goosey about that, letting a 25, 26, 27-year-old come to prom? Mine sure wasn't. They created a new rule because of me. Now, do I go into that story? <laughs> or do I just... <laughs> hey, Alicia, uh, Coco here. Hi, Coco. Um, hello. What? What? So it was my first dance that I had a date to in high school, freshman year. My neighbors across the street, uh, he had a cousin who was my age. We were both 14. and But he went to a different school. So I was like, hey, do you want to come to my dance with me? He was like, yeah, not a problem. So I buy the tickets. We're all set to go. Somehow somebody finds out that he is actually in eighth grade. But he's my age. He got held back a year. Mm. So... It's very early in my freshman year. He's in eighth grade, one year of schooling, but no age difference. My school lost their mind. The principal called me in. My mom worked at my school, so we had to go sit and explain why I would bring an eighth grader to a high school dance. And I was like, well, but we're the same age. I didn't understand. <laughs> and it became this whole thing. And after weeks of meetings and conversations and phone calls for this kid that I didn't, I, I wasn't even close to him. We'd hung out like twice. They finally approved us to go, but then they changed the handbook <laughs> to say that no one can come unless they are actively attending a high school in the area. <laughs> so that's now in the handbook. Uh, we went to the dance. We looked very cute. Uh, all I wanted to do is dance to Leanne Rhymes. And, uh, and, and I told him, I said, hey, I know you have friends that go to my school, so you don't have to hang out all night. I got my friends. But when How Do I Live comes on, you have to find me and we're dancing to that. And then I heard that sweeping intro, and I looked around. Where is he? I'm looking, I'm looking. And so I start going through the whole school, and I found him down a hallway making out with his ex-girlfriend. He did see me, see him, and so I went over to my friends, and I was just like, oh, I think we're done here. And then he was like, oh, you wanted to dance, right? And then you danced with him? Because it was the song I wanted to dance to. And he just, he had, he had kissing he ex lips. He had ex-girlfriend mouth. Wow. The girls then talk about getting up to go pee all night. Sophia even makes a joke about wetting the bed every morning, which is fantastic to see an old broad on network television in the 80s basically say, I pee my bed every morning, and what? Now, it's the wedding day. We get some great opening credit shots here. Rose getting thrown into the closet, the group hug. Rose is sure she has a hunch about the wedding moving too quickly, but Dorothy won't let her speak to Blanche. Dorothy does what I have decided is the worst thing you can do for a friend on their wedding day, not say anything to them. Say it loud, y'all, and if you're about to walk down the aisle and you're still unsure, talk to somebody. No one will hate you, and it's your life. Trust your gut. I've had too many conversations with friends saying, why did I do that? You don't have to. Don't do it. So it's wedding time. The gang is in the living room waiting for Harry, who's running late. The doorbell rings, and it's future designing women hunk, Meshack Taylor. He asks for Blanche Hollingsworth, which is a whoopsie. That was her maiden name, and the house was hers and George's, so it would have been under Devereaux. Anywho, the police are there to inform Blanche that Harry was arrested for bigamy. What's the difference between bigamy and polygamy? Well, both are illegal in the U.S., except that, to no surprise, in Utah, both are now treated with the same severity of a traffic ticket. 
Polygamists have multiple wives that know about each other. Bigamy, they do not. So how could someone be wrapped up in a whirlwind romance and not realize they were being hustled? Well, let's see who's at the door. Hello, it's me, Mary Turner Thompson. I am uh, an international best-selling author of the book, The Bigamist, which was the true story of how my husband was not only a bigamist and a con man, but also uh, a psychopath who actively impregnates women to rip them off for money. In the very first episode of Golden Girls, Blanche gets engaged to a man that she's dated for two weeks. And as the wedding is happening, she then learns that he was a bigamist. How long were you and your former husband together before you got married? Well, we were married. Well, we were married for four years. We were engaged for two years before we got married. But he did ask me to marry him within two or three weeks of meeting him. So, yeah, red flag. Yeah. <laughs> First red flag, waving like frantically above the parapet, going, not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, that's not romantic, ladies. <laughs> Two weeks is not romantic. It's bad. We met online, online dating, which in the year 2000 was brand new. I was a single mom with a one-year-old child and my friend said, what could possibly go wrong? Famous last word. So I got, went on the online dating thing, met this, met this guy, talked to him for a couple of weeks. The day came when he said, he, you know, we should maybe talk on the phone. You know, can I have your number? Uh, and so I gave him my number and he didn't call. And uh, when he got back in touch and said, you know, oh, really, really sorry. I said, get lost. I said, not in your life. <laughs> not Good for you. Uh, and so he spent the next sort of like week or whatever just saying, no, 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 I really, really do want to talk to you. Please, can we talk? Please, can we talk? Until I agreed. So that when he did call, I was already agreeing to talk to him. And we just got on really, really well. You know, he apologized profusely. Work had called him away. And so he would stand me up for dates and stuff like that. And actually when he proposed to me was when he stood me up for a date and I was dumping him. And then he turned around and said, no, no, no. But the reason I was so upset about not being able to do it last night is because I wanted to give you this and handed me a teddy bear with a ring on it, ring on its uh, 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 ribbon around its neck. It just completely it blew me away and completely distracted me from <laughs> ending the relationship with him. And I said no at the time, but uh, you know, he said, well, you know, just I, I, I want you to know that's the direction we're going in and, and that's, that's how serious I am about you. Every time I kind of would go, no, get lost, he would kind of fish and pull me back in. Um, love bomb, gaslight, love bomb, gaslight. Very, very, very good at what he does. I mean, it's like, you know, there are, there are a lot of people out there who are good at what they do. He's a consummate performer. I mean, he really is. Uh, he's one of the most prolific psychopaths in the world and has been hailed as such by various experts. I was very naive. I didn't know people like him existed, not in real life. I didn't sort of register that what the red flags were for. I do now. There is a thing called the psychopath test, which is uh, created by somebody called Dr. Robert Hare, uh, who's the leading expert on psychopathy. I think the world, world renowned. He created this test and it's 20 questions that you either have zero, one or two. So it's like pathological lying. So you, you would say they're definitely not, or they're maybe a little bit, or they definitely are, in which case it's two points. Um, and when professionals have actually assessed my ex, William Allen Jordan, aka Liam Allen, aka uh, Will Jordan, Will Jones Jordan, etc., lots of AKAs. Um, but uh, when they've assessed him, he's actually scored 40 out of 40. He is quite spectacularly psychopathic. He plays different games with people. So, you know, when I first, when the very first email he sent me, he told me he was infertile. He couldn't have children because of a bad bout of mumps as a child. So, um, you know, it was actually quite convenient. I already had a daughter. It was really it's something that really mattered to him. When miraculously I got pregnant, I was so convinced that he, he was convinced he was infertile that I thought he was going to think I had an affair or something. I was surprised that he, he was so trusting that he didn't. And his parents called me to say how pleased they were to have their first, first grandchild, even though they'd spent Christmas with the other wife and their five kids and the nanny who had two kids by him and the woman in America who had a child by him. And we knew that when we found out the truth and he about 10, there's now 14 children that he has that I know of. He impregnates women to rip them off money. Uh, and that's what he does. And his parents were in on it? Complicit. Yes. I mean, whether or not he'd manipulated them into that or whether they just benefited from the money or whether they just did it to stop him from doing to them. How was he getting money from these women? Well, for me, from 2004, um, so we were 
two years into our marriage. So we've been engaged two years, married two years. He proved to me relatively early on in the relationship that he worked for the intelligence services. He had a job in 2005 working for the British government. So not, he took me, his other wife, and five of his fiancés in 2005 into his offices in Westminster working for the Deputy Prime Minister, John Prescott. So when I say he was good at what he did, I mean, he's really good at what he did. So he didn't turn around and say, hey, baby, I'm a spy. You know, he actually proved to us all through evidence that he actually worked for the intelligence services. When, in 2004, he told me that somebody had discovered his real identity and where me and his children resided and was threatening to kidnap the children and rip bits of them and send them to the post unless we gave them blackmail money. If we didn't come up with money, the children would be hurt. So this is four years in and four years of brainwashing. And by this stage, I was totally under his control. I gave him everything I had. I sold everything I owned, um, including my flat, my car, my life insurance policy, everything I had. I was literally left with nothing. I was I was uh, going around my mother's house when I knew she'd be just about to cook dinner because then she would feed me and the kids. Eventually, it was all gone, you know, and I, I had nothing left. And even then, he still was asking me to borrow money off people. And I said, no, wasn't going to do it. I, you know, I, I just couldn't anymore. Did your friends and family, did you tell them about that, that you guys were under threat and that's why no. you had to get rid of everything? No, because anybody I told I would be putting them under threat. It, it was a matter of I had to keep quiet. First rule of any abuser is keep your victim silent. So he used my empathy to make sure that I wouldn't talk to other people. So I was living this in absolute isolation. You know, he, he wasn't around. I was living in fear. I wasn't sleeping. I was, we had two children. So I, I have a son and a daughter by, her, by him. Um, so I was constantly sleep deprived. At the end, I had a seven-year-old, a four-year-old and a one-year-old. Constantly tired, constantly stressed, living from mouth, you know, sort of hand to mouth, ended up homeless. In the end, I lost £198,000 to him, which is about $300,000. And he also had taken credit cards out of my name, leaving me £56,000 in debt because they were in my name. And you thought this was just a nice little story about bigamy. <laughs> <laughs> so when I say that bigamy is the nicer thing he did, I'm, I'm not being flippant, you know. He's also a convicted paedophile. Really? Yes. So it's not, you know, he's, he is, the, I mean, one of the, the things on the um, uh, psychopath test checklist is criminal versatility. And uh, he is incredibly versatile. So in 2006, when he was charged in the UK, he was charged with bigamy, fraud, carrying a firearm because he was carrying a taser, which uh, is illegal in the UK, and not registering his address under the Sex Offenders Act. He is the very definition of criminally versatile. The hard thing is to explain is that we're condensing six years down to this tiny amount. And the, the way these, these abusers work is the love bombing and the gaslighting and the, the language that they use to manipulate. And it is total brainwashing. I'm a relatively intelligent human being. I'm not particularly naive. Um, I did believe, I did believe though those bleeding uh, rom-com things that you would find your one, which I absolutely hate now, I have to say. <laughs> I blame I blame romantic movies. He he appeared to be my soulmate, which is the one thing he uses with everybody. That those conversations we had, I thought I was finding out if he was the right person for me. What he was really doing was researching me. You know, he molded himself into the perfect person for me. So you you're meeting this person who you just absolutely click with. You know, and he he takes it, you know, pushes the relationship that little bit faster than you would normally. So you're slightly off balance, but only slightly, because it went too fast, then you, you, you'd say no, enough. But it just leads you forward that little bit. What you don't realize is that you're not, you're not being placed on a pedestal, you're being glued to it. And then suddenly, you know, what they do is you find that your, your other relationships, for one, one reason or another, start disappearing. You know, family, friends, you know. How was it you came to learn the truth about your husband? The very first chapter is his wife rang me. It is a complicated story, but basically she rang me and said, you know, are you Mary Tanner Thompson? And I said, yes. And she said, are you also Mrs. Jordan? And I said, yes. She said, I'm the other Mrs. Jordan. Uh, and then proceeded to tell me that, uh, yes, she was, she was married to my husband and had five children. And she'd been married to him 10 years longer than me. So... Uh, <laughs> She dropped everything after the phone call and drove up to Edinburgh and we sat and we talked for 12 hours, compared notes, phoned him. He answered her call. He didn't answer mine. <laughs> 
and uh you know sort of like etc and and uh and then she she went back and i sat down on my bed at six o'clock in the morning and uh dumped him by text which i thought was appropriate <laughs> it was like coming out the matrix it was like coming out the matrix and weirdly enough getting the news that he was a bigamist was like getting a get out of jail free card it really surprises people because they mostly expect me to go, oh, it was awful. It, it was suddenly, it was only him. There were no people coming to get my children. There were no people who were going to come and hurt me. I'd run out of money so we could no longer pay these people off and stop them from, from doing what they were going to do. Um, and uh, so it was just him, you know, and it was just like suddenly it was the, the, all these shadowy, horrible figures that were, you know, unsavories who were in the background just sort of vanished like and the other wife that had called you she was also a victim yes were there any wives or partners that knew what was happening that were on the inside with him like his he had he had affairs with all his nannies or most of the nannies because the the other wife with the five children had a nanny all the time uh so one of the nannies had two children <laughs> to him and the, the wife actually took the the nanny and the children into the house so she carried on working as a nanny but her children were brought up with the others as well so I don't know how much the other wife knew uh, of what he was doing the money that was taken her children had a private school education and you know I know that the credit cards were paying for cinema trips and, and food for did for you contemplate family. divorce before finding out about the bigamy just because it was so scary and now you had nothing and he was never around yes but it felt like I was trying to divorce Superman for for doing his job one of the things people are often quite curious is did I kind of mourn the relationship and the thing was it was like realizing that I'd been in love with Captain Jack Sparrow not Johnny Depp you know, and I realized that the person I had been in love with had never existed. You know, that it was literally just a reflection of my own wants and desires. You know, he had played a part that and um, and just was not there. So it wasn't even a mourning of, of somebody dying or anything else because it literally had not existed. Was there ever a moment where he called one of the kids the wrong name or referenced something that you guys hadn't watched together, but he was Adam. It's, you know, those kind of, those day-to-day -day things. He was pretty good at that. I was laughing because he's actually got, I, my, my children have got two brothers who have got the same name. Oh, that's how he didn't flow. No, he no, just no, named no. all his kids the no, same. No, no, he didn't. But he did do certain things that helped him. Like he took us all to see Phantom the Opera. Uh, he took us all to the same Japanese restaurant, which is, you know, when we walked into the restaurant, the, the, the people kind of like looked at him funny and went, hi, you know, and, uh, and I kind of went, oh, how do they know you? So I come here all the time, you know. Of course, the, these staff are seeing come with a different woman every time. And I'm pretty sure he said he introduced me as his wife. <laughs> That's why they looked a bit funny. But who, you know, who actually turns around, you know, in a public setting like that and says, but you were here last week with someone else. You know, people don't do it. They're too polite certainly in the UK. He got convicted and imprisoned. And in 2009, he was deported straight from jail back to the USA. He is currently still in the USA uh, because he's American. He's doing the same all over again. And I regularly get contacted by new victims. And one of the victims who we have spoken to, because we, we now have a victim Facebook group <laughs> with all, this, all of the same man's victims. She, although she knows, uh, she still believes she, she's the one. And, uh, and so she's, uh, she helps him set up other victims. So I think she's probably very much a victim. And I think she's probably, but she, she doesn't think she is. She thinks she's in control and she won't be. I mean, most of the women get on with each other and, you know, we support each other and et cetera, et cetera. So when he comes up to conviction in the USA, we all write to the judge so the judge knows that it's not just a one-off. <laughs> Things like that, you know. When you started telling friends and family, how was that received? Um, very well. My best friend, actually between the phone call from the wife and actually her driving up, uh, I took my best friend for a coffee and, and she and I sat down and I just told her everything. I just said it all out loud and just no holds barred. It was, I think, the only time I felt truly embarrassed as well. She didn't, of course, judge me being my best friend. She was brilliant. She knew the man. She knew everything about him. She had believed him. You know, not, she didn't know anything about the intelligence services, but she, you know, she thought he was a decent guy. So she didn't judge me at all. When it came to telling other people, I never, I never actually felt embarrassed by it. I never felt shame. And I've always felt 
I think it's completely wrong that anybody should ever feel embarrassed or ashamed of having been a victim of a crime. And, you know, we used to shame people hundred years ago, if they'd been raped, you know, they would get called horrible names and, and be unmarriageable and, you know, all sorts of things. And we know now that's wrong, but people still try and shame somebody who's been conned. You know, they try and go, oh, well, you must be an idiot. You know, you, you must be a fool, you know, sort of like you, be, you have been fooled, you know, sort of like in itself, the very language itself, you know, and it's, it's, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for saying, well, no, it's not the victim's fault. You know, the person who conned them, You've got to look at the perpetrators. I'm going off on a tangent now, but how often do you talk about how many rape victims there are as opposed to how many rapists? You know, how often we talk about how many con victims there are instead of how many con men? You know, it's more difficult to quantify, but actually we should be focusing on the perpetrators, not the victims. So I'm a huge advocate for not victim shaming and particularly not victim shaming yourself because so many people do that. I wouldn't like the whole world to become unempathic you know, I think it's I think it's important, and I, I I still think me being an empath is is a superpower, not a not a disability. I hope the people and the other empaths out there who have been caught in the same thing look at me and just go, okay, well if she can hold her head up, so can I, um, and that's what I'd like to be is that inspiration to be able to say, you know, you have nothing to be ashamed of. If you have been conned, if you believed somebody loved you, if you believed somebody was going to uh, fulfill a contract and they didn't, you know, you haven't done anything wrong. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You have nothing to be embarrassed by. What advice do you have for those that are dating now, especially since almost all dating is done online? Uh, or the advice I give is, first of all, don't think that you are bonding with somebody online. Don't give them all the information. Find out online whether you want to meet them, then meet them. It's much harder for a psychopath or, or an abuser of any kind to become the person in per sort of to, to become the chameleon in person. Then it's much easier if you say, Oh, I've read this book, and they go, Okay, Google. <laughs> they Google the book and then they go, they read it and they go, Oh, I've read that too, you know. So it's much easier online for them to fake it. All right. So, so don't give them so much information to start with. Find out if you want to meet them and then meet them in person. Secondly, meet their family and their friends. If they don't have any, that's a red flag. All right. Uh, even if they're just traveling, we have FaceTime now. We have video chatting. We didn't in 2000, so I wasn't able to do that. But, you know, you can have that face-to-face -face conversation. I had lots of lovely conversations with his mother, um, all online and all him. But I now when I'm talking to new victims and stuff like that, I always make sure I video chat with them so it's not him because <laughs> it's very easy that he managed to have lots of different accounts and he was emailing. And, and you know, so I met and talked to his family, but of course I wasn't. I was talking to him. People say if it's too good to be true, then it probably isn't. But it's not like that. It's, it isn't the fact that it's too good. And the other people say if they, use your gut instinct if it doesn't feel right. It feels perfect. It feels like you've met your soulmate. You know, if you, everything is right, your gut is not telling you there's anything wrong. Everything is absolutely wonderful. You know, so you are blind to all these things. But just try, so try and keep that little bit back and analyze things and go, okay, you know, hang on a minute and talk to your friends, tell people, articulate about it, you know, and make sure somebody, you have somebody who you can talk to. And if not, not turn Catholic and go and talk to a priest or someone. So he was arrested. Did he serve any time in the, the US or the UK? Many times. Uh, he served, he got five years in the UK, uh, did two and a half before he was deported. And then he was back in the US and he did another three years in the US after the hidden camera footage videos. He's done, he's been in prison in Canada. He's been in prison, you know, since he was 18 years old, in and out for usually fraud um, or impersonating police officers or, you know, things like that. So he's got quite a record <laughs> in multiple countries. We believe he's in Vermont at the moment. The latest baby was born on the 19th, of, sorry, the 1st of August, 2019. He has a one-year-old and that's the 14th baby that you think? That's that, that I know of. The, that'll be the tip of the iceberg. I suspect there's more likely to be 40. Uh, I mean, those are the ones I've found, and I'm not a detective. So there's likely to be far, far more than that. Have you broken the news to anyone? Yes and no. I mean, I, I've, I've broken the news when people have found me. One of the best stories around that was um, we did a NBC Dateline. Michelle and I did NBC Dateline. This woman who had uh, 
a two-year relationship with Will Jordan and he went out one day and just disappeared and she thought he'd committed suicide or or you know, sort of something awful had happened to him. But she she was getting changed. She was a nurse doing a, an extra shift. So she had a shower and got changed for work. And she was looking in the mirror, just getting dressed. And she'd sat on the remote control of her TV and it switched on to NBC Dateline. And she looked in the mirror and she saw the man that she'd lived with for two years. He'd walked out and she just kind of <laughs> and took a photograph of the screen and sent it to her friend and said, look, he looks really like Will. And, uh, and the friend said, oh, is it, yeah, that is him, you know. And she sort of like went, oh my gosh, this is actually the guy. So she got in touch with us and said, oh my God, this is the same guy. It's extraordinary how people end up finding out and getting, getting in touch with us. Quite a little community of us now. So he averages about four or five women at the same time. How many are in the financial thing how many are being told i'm in the cia most of them are told and now now that he's in america he says he's british intelligence as opposed to to american intelligence pretty much all of them are told that he does cut he does pass himself off as a, a pediatric doctor scrubs and all <laughs> he has passed himself off as a psychiatrist he's passed himself off as all sorts of things whereas will jordan doesn't do it so much for the money or the relationships he does it for the power over somebody you're a writer, an author, researcher. What has your life been since since that phone call? Well, I've now got a 21-year-old, an 18-year-old, and a 15-year-old. Um, those are the challenges in themselves. <laughs> so they're a lot older now. I run a publishing company where I help children become published authors. I have a fantastic life. Uh, the last year has been no kids, no school, no, you know, so I've really struggled with that. So I've been doing writing, coaching and editing and I'm writing a new book. I'm writing a novel. I have great fun. I love my life. It's brilliant. Rather than allowing any relation, any a relationship or any um, adversity or challenge to knock me backwards. I can't remember where it came from. It was, it was, it was a lovely analogy I heard a long time ago. It's like when you get knocked back, you can either just fall flat on your ass or you can think of it as like pulling the string of a bow and allowing it to propel you forward uh, onto something bigger, brighter, and better. And um, that's what I decided to do. I decided that I had a golden opportunity to teach my children by example. And our children learn by example. You can sit there with a cigarette in your mouth saying, don't smoke, they're going to smoke. They do what we do. And I thought, I knew I need to teach my children how to deal with this. And if it happened to them, what would I say? And I wouldn't say, lie down and feel sorry for yourself. I would say, pick yourself up, dust yourself down and go off and do something. And so that's what I've done. Given myself license to actually be happy because that's what I want my children to be. I am. So they needed to know growing up. I mean, it was really important. And also, but as a result, they've, they've not got any kind of daddy issues at all because they, they've, they've been able to talk about it all their lives. But, you know, I, I, I was left with nothing. But the, the one thing I had, or the three things I had, um, that, you know, were just the, the best things ever with my three children. Um, and they've, they've made, absolutely made life worth living. And, yeah, and if it wasn't for them, I, I probably would have been a bit more of a mess, shall we say. But, you know, I knew I had to be. I, they only had one parent left. You know, that parent had to be strong. And, and pick herself up and do something with her life because otherwise we were scuppered. <laughs> Your positivity really just radiates and it's it really is inspiring because we've all, everyone's dated that jerk, not to the same degree <laughs> <laughs> by far, but you know, the narcissist or the whatever, you know, person. And you, you look back at, at a year or something, just be like, oh, what the heck? Was, how did that even, it seemed so good. And how did that happen? To be able to, hear someone be that much more in it, you know, and, and be okay. Yeah. It's very inspiring. The, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is light at the end of the tunnel. You know, so no matter what you go through, as long as you're still alive, you know, you can, you can affect a change and you can do something and you can make it better. Um, don't marry a bigamist. <laughs> Thank you for being a friend, Mary. To read the rest of Mary's unbelievable story, you can buy her book, The Bigamist, at her website, maryturnerthompson.com. That's T-H-O-M-S-O-N, maryturnerthompson.com. Blanche is left with a note and broken heart. Embarrassed from feeling duped, Blanche seeks solace in her friends who are right by her side, comforting and supporting. 
Later, we're on the lanai where Sophia is sleeping. Dorothy, as she mentions again in the future, keeps a mirror in her bag to check and see if she's breathing. Blanche still hasn't gone to work or social events since the wedding. Dorothy gives us an oh boy in talking about how Irish and Jewish people handle grief. You eat, you cry, you drink, you vomit, you're done. If you're Jewish, you cry, you sit, you eat for seven days, you gain 10 pounds, and it's over. We Italians scream, dress up a donkey, hire a band, and that's that. It's these Southern Protestants that make it a way of life. Which, yes, Blanche later says that she is a Baptist, but technically Baptists fall under Protestants. Here we are, the last few minutes of the very first episode, and the girls are talking about grief and death. Blanche appears, radiant as ever, surprising the girls with her vibrancy. Although she comes from an area on the lanai that is actually the side gate and not the house, so I'm not exactly sure where she had been or had come from, but oh well, she's feeling better. She talks about the sadness and hurt, that she didn't think she could find someone else, so she was settling for a bigamist. Keep those bars high, ladies. We wrap up on one of the most iconic credit shots, the three ladies sitting around an ottoman promising that, no matter what, they'll stick together. Sophia and Coco have plans to go out to the dog tracks while the girls make plans for dinner. Sophia disappears into the same little gate side of the wall while the girls head to the house. What the hell, guys? Help your 80-year-old mother get inside. While we have just met the girls, we already see their love for each other, their undying support, and humor. We've learned that all they want is what we all want, to be loved, to have people to love, and to share our lives with those people. So don't settle for fast, exciting lust, don't hire manservants, and don't forget to Google people you're dating. Thank you again to Jocelyn Cook, Jamie Ulrich, and Emily Rowney for their vocal assistance on our theme song. And thank you again to Mary Turner Thompson for sharing her story. For more information on all of our episodes, you can visit alwaysbemysisters.com. At the end of each episode, I will be sharing love letters. Not to me, silly, but to the gals. We all have our favorite line, moment, episode, or memory of watching it with someone special. I would love to hear yours, so please send me an email at alwaysbemysisters at gmail.com with your favorite memories of the Golden Girls, and you just might hear it on the show. Since this is the first episode, I thought I would share my love letter. Growing up, I would spend about three months of the year in Las Vegas with my mom's parents. While I don't remember the show when it aired originally, I remember watching the reruns with my mom and Grammy. I didn't always get the adult jokes, but I loved how the show would make my mom and Grammy laugh. More accurately, my mom laugh and my Grammy scream. She had this Texas-sized scream laugh that was never louder than when she was watching the Golden Girls, especially when her southern sister Blanche would make a good joke. And it's Blanche that holds the honor of my very favorite moment of the series. It's from the episode A Little Romance, when Blanche invites Rose's crush over for dinner, then learns he's a little person. After acting like the little person that was there was actually a prank, she stands between Rose and her crush and lets out the most awkward giggle before locking eyes with nothing and barely opening her mouth to say, God, I wish I was dead, with that drawl and killer blue jumpsuit. It makes me scream laugh every time. Each episode, I will be giving a shout out to an artist or small business that creates Golden Girl goodies. If you create Golden Girl goodies, email me and we can all support our fellow Golden Girl lovers by buying small. For my first shout out, I would like to thank and direct your attention to Michael Damata, the artist that created the amazing cover art for the show. I commissioned the work after finding him on Instagram and he was a dream to work with. You can see his beautiful work on his Instagram at M-J-D-I-M-O-T-T-A, that's M-J-D-I-M-O-T-T-A, or at his website, michaeldemata.com, where you can also support his art by buying prints. It's the... Uh, it, uh, you're not ready for the big leagues, baby. <laughs> Get the f*** out of here. Which her character did, and that it caused Dane, Dane Bramage, is what I was saying. The name's Dane Bramage. <laughs> <laughs> you might know my mom, Mrs. Shulhair. 
Oh, Faye? Faye. Oh. Faye Shulhair? I love Faye. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful mustache. From a literal shotgun or just familial pressure, she and her father are, for are forced into marriage. <laughs> Not her father, the father. Which is why I am lucky enough to have my own Coco here with me. Hello. Hi, Coco. Hi. Coco, go bye-bye. That was my first date, like dance date. Not my first date date, but you know my first date. My first date that I thought was a date, but then I learned later when I dated the guy 20 years later that it wasn't a date. Yeah. We all went and visited my family in Sacramento. And then you all had, okay. No, it was outside. Uh, Tulak? Turlock. Turlock. And there was a lake there. And we all went and played for the day. I have no idea what it was called. Could never find it again if I had to. And the next day, we like when we all should have been like foul, we yeah. were like, oh, our feet don't stink. That's weird. All three of us, not a smell since that day. That lake, I swear to you. you can't. I know how crazy that sounds. It was the only connecting thing. Wow. All three of us went in that lake. All three of us had the same stinky feet. I mean, my feet still stink if I like go running or do, you know, sweaty feet. Sure. Turlock, Tur yeah, California. California. All right, everybody. <laughs> if you if you know of this, if you've been in the waters of Turlock, if they have. I think I'll have to ask specific. If you've been healed. Andrew got his start as an instrumentalist on Linda Ronstadt's. I always struggle with her name. <laughs> Andrew got his start as an instrumentalist on Linda Ronstadt's album before Ronstadt. What are we saying, Ronstadt? Andrew got his start as an instrumentalist on Linda Ronstadt's album. <laughs> Rond. Rond. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.